Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see as we open your word this morning, as we gather around your table, as we sing songs to your holy name. Shape us, Lord. Shape us into the image of your Son, who is the servant king. Amen. Amen. About 10 years ago, someone shared uh, an internet video with me that up to that point was probably the coolest thing I've ever seen on YouTube. A professional Christmas choir of over 100 people did this incredible performance of the Alleluia Chorus from Handel's Messiah. You know what I'm talking about, right? Alleluia, Alleluia. Um, But the coolest part was that they did it flash mob style right in the middle of a shopping mall in the midst of this unsuspecting food court. And the choir sort of spread themselves among the people and dressed like regular shoppers. And one of them even disguised themselves as a janitor. They were holding a do not slip sign. And then you hear this subtle organ start in the background. And this woman stands up with a cell phone and, with, to her ear. And she just starts belting out the chorus. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! And, uh, and you see the shoppers sort of turn their head like, what the heck is she doing? And then another man with this like crummy sweater and a five o'clock shadow stands up on his chair and he answers her, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! And uh, by this point, the regular shoppers are watching in stunned silence. They're totally confused. And then some of the other choir members begin to chime in from the sides and from the midst of the people with Christmas bags in their hands and everybody breaks out in four-part harmony. And the best part is the message of the song, because they're boldly singing out these eternal truths about Jesus right in the middle of this mall. King of kings forever and ever, Lord of lords, hallelujah, hallelujah. And at this point in the song, the regular shoppers have sort of caught on to what's happening. You see the kids watching, they're smiling, they're taking it all in. Adults with just awe on their faces. They're just sitting there. Others start to sing along while others take out their cell phones. They're trying to kind of capture the moment, what's going on around them. Now, years later, there have been many copycat videos. And flash mobs have become more of a thing. But back then, I have to imagine that must have been one of the most shocking things that had ever happened to the people that were sitting in that food court. So they're going about their day. Right in the middle of their business, when all of a sudden this beautiful choral music, and, and even more than that, this bombastic proclamation of Jesus, his kingship, that he's the king of kings and lord of lords, and it invades their space in this most unexpected way, a dazzling and unignorable breach of their everyday lives. And brothers and sisters, this is exactly what the kingship of Jesus is supposed to do in our lives. It's supposed to function not just like some sort of like classical music that we get all dressed up to hear once a year or that we barely know and it's sort of like a distant memory from our past. The kingship of Jesus is meant to invade our space, to interrupt, to breach our everyday lives. In 1 Timothy 6, 14 through 16, Paul urges Timothy, as well as us, 
to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So in light of the eternal kingship of Jesus, we are to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach in this present life, submitting to his lordship now in the classroom, at our dinner table, at the work desk, in our neighborhood. But what does this mean? What does the flash mob kingship of Jesus look like in our everyday lives? This morning we come to the last Sunday of the liturgical year, commonly known as Christ the King Sunday. And conveniently, we also come to the last week of our fall sermon series on 1 Timothy and to this proclamation of Jesus as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Will you turn there with me in a pew Bible to 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 21? It's on page 993 of your pew Bible. And I want us to be confronted with the kingship of God in four ways from this passage. The flash mob kingship of Jesus, we see it at work in four different ways. We see God as creator king, redeemer king, sustainer king, and the king of kings. So diving right into 1 Timothy 6.13, Paul makes a reference to God as the creator, the creator king. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. In other words, as Paul is in the middle of giving this final exhortation to Timothy in his letter to flee from the bad and to fight for the good, in verses 11 and 12, his words are made all the more weighty by his conscious awareness that they're both living and standing in the presence of the Creator who gives life to all things. And I don't know about you, but I find it inspiring that Paul has his heart sort of inflamed with faith while he's writing this letter, or probably more likely dictating it to a scribe. And he's conscious of God's ever-presentness. And this gives his exhortation a greater weightiness, a sense of urgency. And I think we all intuitively understand this principle when we know that we're in the presence of someone that we greatly respect, aren't we automatically like a bit more conscientious about our words and actions, right? We're like, oh, was what I just said stupid? Dang it. <laughs> and if this is true in the presence of created humans, how much more so in the presence of the creator king? But Paul says we're always in his presence. I charge you in the presence of this creator king. Just consider for a minute, a minute the sovereign power that God displayed at creation. His mere words were sufficient to accomplish his will. God said, let there be light, and it was so. Whatever God thought and spoke, stars, water, rhinoceros, <laughs> platypus, boom, Right With no further effort or exertion, that thing was immediately wrought into existence. Nothing is hard for God. God is sovereign over all things. That's the thing that's unique about God's word, too, because 
because he's the sovereign king, his, his words are completely efficacious. Right? If I give you a promise about something that I'm going to do three weeks from now, you don't know for sure whether it's going to happen. I mean, you don't know if I'm going to get in a car accident. You don't know if I'm just going to be flaky. I'm not going to come through. But when God says something, it is so. Because he's the creator king. And his words create reality. That's the God that we're all sitting in the presence of right now. But God is not only the creator. He's not just some sort of like clockmaker God who like set the universe in motion, wound up the clock, and then left us to just deal with ourselves, as the deists say. He's also the redeemer king, Emmanuel, God with us, the flash mob king who enters our lives, enters our malls, enters time, enters the universe that he created in order to rescue us at great cost to himself. He's not looking at our suffering from a distance. He enters into it and wears the kingly crown of thorn. Mm -hmm. Did ever such love or sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? is the crown that Jesus wore at the day of his crucifixion. This is what Paul reminds us of as we read on in verse 13. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, so that is God the Father, and of Christ Jesus, so God the Son, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Now what does Paul mean when he speaks about Jesus' testimony before Pontius Pilate. Here the Greek word for testimony that he uses is martyreo, which means to bear witness, to give evidence, to testify. The word martyreo has the same root as our English word martyr. A martyr is someone who testifies about the truth of God in a particularly costly way, and at the cost of their own lives. And according to this passage, Jesus is the martyr. He is the man. As he stood before Pontius Pilate, he made the good confession. He could have denied his own kingship, right, and quelled the worst fears of Rome. But instead, he testified to the truth. He said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said, everyone who listens to the truth hears my voice. And he even goes so far as to tell Pilate, you have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. And in response to Jesus' testimony, did you catch it? Pilate asked with this sort of cynical Greco-Roman smirk, what is truth? Right? He only knows power. He only knows jockeying. This guy, Jesus, seems to be from another planet. He says, where are you from? He cowardly hands him over to the mob. Jesus was and is a king like no other king and a martyr without parallel. What other king was ever so willingly led like a lamb to the slaughter? And what other martyr had recourse to a legion of angels at his disposal. He said in the Gospel of John, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. So don't just think, you know, poor Jesus. What a mishandling of justice. He said, I don't want you to think that's what's going on here. 
He lays it down on his own accord. It wasn't for lack of power that Jesus died. He died for love. He died for love. Love for you. Love for you. Love for you, my brothers and sisters. I was just having coffee the other day with a relatively new believer. And she was talking about this experience she had in worship. And it's so refreshing to hear new believers talk about their life with God. She said, I've just never been loved in this way. Jesus knows every part of me, and yet he still wants to draw me close. That's just so beautiful, and it's so true. Jesus is the Redeemer King who was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. And that was an exercise of kingly love unlike any the world had ever seen. But God is not only the creator king who spoke the world into existence as a sheer act of sovereign power, and he's not only the redeemer king who was pierced for our transgressions, he's also the sustainer king, the one who keeps everything going, who keeps the world turning. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Hebrews 1.3. It says that the Son of God sustains all things by his powerful word. So that same word, which formed the stars and gravity and smaller things like our internal organs, is also the same word that upholds and sustains all things. Without Jesus' sustaining word, the universe, the laws of nature, everything in it, would unravel like a ball of yarn. Do you know that? Without the sustainer king, all that has been brought into existence would cease to exist. Now, I get fired up when I talk about these things, and um, one of the things you should do every now and then is pray for my daughters, Avila and Nora, (laughs) because they've had to endure the daily reality for many years of having a dad who studied philosophy. (laughs) (laughs) Lord, have mercy on these girls. And I remember when they were about five and three years old, respectfully, respectively, excuse me, um, we were driving along in the car, and I wanted them to understand this idea of God as sustainer and upholder. So I asked them a series of philosophical Socratic questions. I said, are you girls sitting down right now? They said, yes. So I said, well, that's good. What are your butts sitting on? And they answered, our car seats. And if they weren't paying attention before, they started paying attention when I said the word butts. (laughs) So I asked, what are your car seats resting upon? The car, they said. And what about the car? What's it driving on? The road. And what's the road built on? The ground. And that went on for a while. And I said, do you notice, girls, that everything in the world is dependent upon something else? And they were tracking with me. And by the way, that's true. You can think about it for a while. Everything in the universe depends upon something else. And so I continued. I asked them, okay, well, if it's true that everything depends upon something else, what is it that everything depends upon? What is it that upholds everything? God, they answered immediately and in a very matter-of-fact tone. And I said, absolutely, that's what I think. 
And that's what the philosophers of old taught. They said that someone or something must exist that everything else depends on, but is itself dependent upon nothing. That's who we call God. But this idea, the necessity of a sustainer, is not just a matter of high-minded philosophy. Here in 1 Timothy 6, Paul works out this doctrine on a more practical level. He says in verse 17, And as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, Paul's already given several warnings in verses 3 through 10 to those who desire to be rich. Those who are not yet rich, they desire to be rich. Fumi preached an excellent sermon on that, and I encourage you to go back and check that out. One of the things he noted was that money is not a morally neutral thing. It has a drift towards idolatry. It has a drift toward disobedience. It lulls us. It tempts us. But Paul does want to speak to Christians in this passage who are already rich. And I think this is about the best that the Bible has to say in just a short few verses to those who are already rich. He says four things here in verses 17 and 18. First, he says, don't let your money make you prideful. Haughty is the word he uses. You ever notice that? You got some money. You think you got everything. You think everything will go the way that you want to. People start acting differently. People start talking differently. It's pride, guys. It's pride. We're starting to trust in themselves. And that brings us to number two. Don't trust in your money. Paul talks about the uncertainty of riches, which is changeable. It's finite. The stock market crashes. But trust in God who is unchangeable and eternal. And even more than that, he's like, you can't bring it with you, but you can lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven that will never be destroyed. Jesus says, moth and rust and a thief could never steal it because you're laying it up in heaven. So don't let your money make you prideful. Don't trust in your money. And then in verse 18, he shifts from avoiding evil to being proactive in doing good. He says, be rich in good works. So rich Christians are not exempt from obeying God's commands or from using their gifts in ministry or from washing the feet of their brothers and sisters. They are to be people who too are rich in good works. It's not sufficient to just write a check. They're to be rich in good works. But writing a check is also good. And that's why fourthly, Paul says they are to be generous and ready to share. Generous philanthropy, it's not sufficient, but it is necessary for any wealthy followers of Jesus. Isn't that a great list? Don't be prideful or trust in your money. Do be rich in good works and generous. Wealth is a dangerous thing, as we said. It's not a morally neutral thing. It has a drift to it. But behind all these instructions is an affirmation of God as our only provider and sustainer. He has set the sun in the sky and created the four seasons, but he remains active, bringing the harvest each year. Therefore, when the harvest is plentiful or we get a promotion or our work is especially fruitful, we continue to offer up thanks to God who richly provides us. That's why the older I get, the more Thanksgiving becomes one of my favorite holidays. Food's not bad either. 
We always have a reason to give gratitude to God as our provider and sustainer. Amen? Amen. In fact, if you've ever attended a black church in America, you've probably heard a prayer something like this. God, I thank you for just another day to be alive. I thank you for breath in my lungs. I thank you that I woke up with my health today and in a sound mind. It's such a wonderful example of having an attitude of gratitude mm-hmm. for our sustainer. And it comes from their past. Of, you know, we're, we're not able to you know, just sort of rely on another day, rely on life, rely on health. These things, our safety should not be taken for granted. And they give thanks to the Lord for that, even this day. Now, maybe my favorite part in this First Timothy 6 passage is that it says that God provides us with everything to enjoy. Isn't that nice? God wants us to enjoy ourselves, to enjoy creation, to enjoy his good gifts. Is that consistent with the way that you think about God? Is that how you think about God naturally? Do you think of God as a good father who wants you to enjoy the good gifts that he provides for you? Because there's another teaching out there both back then and even today, which denies the goodness of creation and says that human pleasure is actually something to be ashamed of. I like what C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters, you know, the devils are arguing with each other and the the guy says, yeah, you know, if only we could create our own pleasures, but we can only pervert the pleasures that God has already made. It's God who made pleasures for us to enjoy. He gives us commands to use them so that we can use them the way that they were intended and with freedom. This teaching, this false teaching, says that the physical world is evil or an illusion or is in some way unimportant. This is actually a fairly common view among the religions of the world today. It was also one of the earliest Christian heresies among the Gnostics and later the Neoplatonists and the Manichaeans. Paul has already warned of this kind of teaching in 1 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 5. He says, They forbid people to marry, and they order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good. Well, it sounds like he's quoting from Genesis 1. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Pretty cool image of giving thanks to God and just receiving the good gifts that he's given to us. And here in this chapter, Paul warns Timothy again, right at the very end, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, gnosis. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Now this doesn't mean that there is no place whatever in Christianity for asceticism and self-denial. After all, Jesus said that anyone who wants to follow him must deny themselves daily, take up their cross and follow him. For he who would try to keep his life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for his sake will truly find it. Amen. Hallelujah. I will preach that to you on another sermon. (laughs) But the point is that we deny ourselves for the sake of the love of others, not because we believe God is offended by our enjoyment. We're about to celebrate. You can enter into that, brothers and sisters. We deny ourselves because our desires have become out of whack. Our drinking has gotten out of hand or we've become slaves to lust. Not because God's creation has somehow become bad. 
In essence, we deny ourselves for the sake of increased freedom to follow God and enjoy things the way that he intended them to be enjoyed. All right, so we've talked about God as the creator king, redeemer king, and sustainer king. And now I want to go back to this proclamation from Handel's Messiah in 1 Timothy 6, verses 15 and 16. Here Paul refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now one of the things that's really cool is that oftentimes in the New, New Testament, when they're sort of proclaiming something about Jesus or they're constructing something about him that they want us to notice, they'll take two passages from the Old Testament, one that has to do with God and one that has to do with the human king, and they'll just combine it in one. All right, so you see this in Revelation chapter 1, when you see Jesus, the way that John sees him in a vision, it's a combination of the figure of the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days, from Daniel chapter 7. You see qualities of both those characters, they're combined together into a single unit, because Jesus is the divine human king, fully God, fully man. Well, something similar is going on in this passage. In Deuteronomy 10.17, Yahweh is referred to as the Lord of Lords. Yahweh is the Lord of Lords. And later on in Daniel chapter 2, verse 37, the prophet Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the most powerful man in the world at the time, you're the king of kings. Everyone in the world listens to you, right? But here... Just like in the book of Revelation, these two titles are brought together. These accolades are brought together as sort of a fitting combination for Jesus, the divine and human king. Do you see that? This is what Christ the King Sunday is all about. It's about how God became king. In the words of N.T. Wright, he's always been king, but he made himself the rightful king of this earth as a human king. And so he reigns from heaven and he reigns through David's promised son. I want to unpack these verses just a little bit more, just so we can appreciate Jesus a bit more before we end. When it says that Jesus is the only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, it means not only that Jesus is the highest king, like Nebuchadnezzar was, reigning above all others, but also He's the only king who is king by his very nature, not merely by circumstance. Jesus' kingship is one of his divine attributes, something that's been true of him from all eternity. That's why he is owed honor and eternal dominion in both directions, because it's part of his very nature. Similarly, when Paul says that Jesus alone has immortality, he's not trying to deny that we share and his eternal life by faith in him, but instead that Jesus is the only one who is immortal in his very nature. Does that make sense? As Jesus says in John 5, 24, Very, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. And he goes on to say, For the Father has life in himself, so he is granted to the Son, to have life in himself. It's that creative life, that word that we heard in Genesis 1. 
So Jesus is the only sovereign, and he alone has immortality, but also, Paul says, he dwells in unapproachable light. And this really speaks of his holiness. God's holiness refers to his utter uniqueness, his otherness, the power of his glory, and the potency of his perfection. A good metaphor for God's holiness is to think of the sun. So the sun is totally unique, at least in our solar system. It gives life to all other things, but at the same time, it's powerful and potent, right? If you come too close to the sun, it will burn you up. So, in the words of the Bible Project, which I love, that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous, And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're unpure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. This is what Paul means when he says that God dwells in unapproachable light. Even the area around God is holy. Right? Do you remember Moses in the burning bush? Do not come any closer, God said to him. In Exodus 3, 5, take the sandals off your feet for the place that you're standing is holy ground. Later on in Exodus 33, 18, Moses boldly requests, Lord, show me your glory. He's up on the mountain with God. Show me your glory. And the Lord responds, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on who I have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see my face and live. It's too holy. Too holy even for Moses. This is what Paul means when he says, no one has ever seen or can see God. Not in this life. Not on this side of perfection. Not on this side of being glorified by him. When Moses finally comes down from the mountaintop, it says in the Bible that his face has this radiant glow. Even from just seeing the outer fringes of God's glory. And so all the people of Israel, they're afraid of him. And Moses has to start wearing a veil on his face that he only takes off when he goes into the presence of God. I mean, that's weird. (laughs) This is what it means to be confronted the presence of Jesus Christ with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I know so many people that after they came to know Jesus, people said, what's going on with you? Like, What's changed in you? It's almost like there's a light that's beaming out from them. Their countenance has changed. They're walking in a more free way. There's a sense of glory upon them. But now in the new covenant, the beautiful thing is, guys, it's not just for the mountaintop. He's the flash mob king. He wants to enter our lives in many and various ways. Jesus wants his kingly lordship to invade our everyday spaces, to affect the way we think about creation and his good gifts, to affect the way that we use money. He wants to come to be Emmanuel, God with us, the Word made flesh, to tabernacle in the midst of us. And as I close, I just wonder if there's anyone here 
who's maybe heard the message about Jesus being the Savior, being the Redeemer King, that he wore the crown of thorns, that he died in our place. And we're like, amen, I believe in that, I've believed in that for a long time. But you're not following him as your king. You're not actually putting his commands into practice. You say, I want the forgiveness, but I don't want to follow you. I want you as Savior, but I don't want you as Lord. Well, there's only one Jesus, and he's both, guys. Just like those two Old Testament pictures were combined into one. If you reject him as Lord, you're rejecting him as Savior. If you embrace him as Savior, he will show you by his Holy Spirit how to follow him as Lord. But it can't just be the, I'm just kind of negotiating the way that I follow Jesus. I don't let him give commands about the way that I live my sexual life. I don't let him give commands about the way that I use my money. I don't let him give commands about the way that I use my words. I don't let him give commands about my inner, inner attitudes. Who's that hurting? I don't let him give commands about the way that I use my time. I don't let him give commands about my calendar. I don't let him give commands about my rest. I don't let him give commands about my celebrating. You're not following Jesus as Lord. If that's you, you're not following Jesus as Lord. And I invite you to know him today in his fullness. In his fullness. He is both Savior and Lord. He receives all who, came, who come to him. That's why he came. That's why he came, guys. Son of God came. To save sinners. But he came not just to forgive our sins, but to call us to follow him and to call us into newness of life. Amen.